0: Hey y'all, welcome back to another episode of Well-Lit Path. I wanted to thank you for taking the time to join me again this week. I know your time is valuable. I appreciate you choosing to spend it here with me in God's Word. Uh, This week we're in Psalm 9, but before we get started, how's your week been? You know, uh, a couple of weekends ago we had the great joy, as it always is, of having our grandson overnight. Uh, I can never get enough time with him or snuggles with him. Uh, whenever he gets tired and I'm around, and this happens even at his house when his mom and dad are around, he'll crawl over to me and reach up to get into my lap. Once I pick him up, he just kind of settles right in and starts looking around for the bottle that he's anticipating. Since he was just a baby, and he, I mean, he still is a baby, that's kind of been our thing. Uh, nap or sleep time, when I'm around, we sit together and I'll sing to him as he takes his bottle or we'll watch his favorite show and that's just where he'll fall asleep. Even at his age, he'll he'll be one soon, he knows from repetition that Grandpa will hold him, Grandpa will protect him and care for him when it's time to go to sleep. Grandpa has before and he will again. When I look at the habit that's been formed in that bond that's there, I look at my own life. Uh, God is always with me and around me, and in times of trouble or when I need to rest in him, I really only have to turn to him and reach up. And just like he has before and will continue to do over and over again, he reaches down, he picks me up, he sets me in his lap and says, it's okay, I'll protect you, I'll care for you. And safe in His arms, I'm reminded of all the times that He's held me before, and I'm assured that He will continue to hold me when I need it. You know, Psalm 9 that we're looking at this week advocates this pattern that we should form in our lives. God has been good, God is good, and God will be good. In the face of trouble, in the face of enemies, when we need rest and to be reminded of His goodness, we just need to reach up to him as David does in this psalm. So let's dig right in. Psalm 9, beginning in verse 1 I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will show forth all thy marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O thou most high. When mine enemies are turned back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence. For thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou satest in the throne, judging right. Thou hast rebuked the heathen. Thou hast destroyed the wicked. Thou hast put out their name forever and ever. O thou enemy, destructions are come to a perpetual end. And thou hast destroyed cities. Their memorial is perished with them. But the Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared his throne for judgment, and he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee, for thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. Sing praises to the Lord, which dwelleth in Zion. Declare among the people his doings. When he maketh inquisition for blood, he remembereth them. He forgetteth not the cry of the humble. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Consider my trouble, which I suffer of them that hate me. Thou that liftest me up from the gates of death. That I may show forth all thy praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in thy salvation. The heathen are sunk down in the pit that they made. In the net which they hid is their own foot taken. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Higeon Silah. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the heathen be judged in thy sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Selah. I'm not going to get too deep into background on this one, um, mostly because from my studies, no one can prove a reference from Scripture uh, what the historical context actually is. It does seem obvious from David's movements through the passage that he was facing some kind of trial, uh, some kind of persecution, as we can see in the beginning of our text. Knowing this from having read the entirety the entirety of the passage, It may seem a little strange that he begins with, I will praise thee with my whole heart. I will show forth all your marvelous works. How many times when a trial or trouble arises in your life, have you spoken the words, Lord, I'll praise you in this storm? You know, it makes for a great song lyric, but what does it look like in action? I know from my own life, My first response is almost exclusively, Lord, help. I don't know why I'm going through this, but help. I don't think I can even imagine what would change in my life if facing a trial, I were to say, hey, Lord, look at this trial. Look at this opportunity for you to show me how marvelous you are. Lord, thank you for this trial and be good to me in it as you have been good to me in past trials. What would that look like? How would our unbelieving acquaintances look at us if we were to say out loud, hey, listen, I'm pretty excited about this problem I'm having in my life right now. Let me tell you how good my God is. You know, there hasn't been a problem yet he hasn't helped me through, and I am ecstatic to see how he'll bring me through this one. And instead... All too often, my refrain is probably more like yours and sounds more like this. Man, I wish I didn't have this struggle in my life. I, I just can't believe what's going on right now. I, I don't know how I'm going to get through this one. You know, that's exactly the kind of struggle and hopelessness the unbeliever experiences. And Christian, I'm going to be honest, we don't have that problem. How are we answering for that hope that dwells within us if we're not proclaiming his glory in our struggles? So go on. Turn the podcast off. I don't even want to keep studying this passage right now. Because I'm convicted. How is this not my default? And I mean, I've never faced down a giant. I've never committed murder. I've never had a king looking for me to kill me over and over and over again. David could say all of those things about his life. And if he can praise God with his whole heart, despite all the trials he faced, who am I not to trust our God will do the same? He's the same God. And not only that, David didn't have the great blessing of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You know, the spirit that works in us to remind us in troubled times of God's goodness. The spirit who lives in us and comforts us like David could never experience. And David's going to rejoice? He's going to sing? How? Why? Because our God is most high. Faith should not be subjected to your circumstance. Faith is a choice. David could have given in to doubt and worry in this moment. But David chose to praise God. And why do we not take this same attitude? Choice. You have to choose joy. You have to choose to sing praises. We have to choose to praise him. No, for that matter, I have to choose to praise him, to sing praises to him, to worship him, because he is most high. Who else am I going to praise? Who else but him has delivered on his promises to me time and time again? You know, he's promised to take care of my enemies, even the enemies that I war against within myself. And he's caused them to flee before. I mean, they've turned their backs, they've tucked tail and run. He's put the literal fear of himself into our enemies, and they've stumbled over themselves getting away. You know, the picture here is that they're trying to escape by means of a narrow cliff, and in their haste and fear, Those that had come seeking our destruction stumble and fall off the edge to their own destruction. Now, the next verse may seem a little tricky or unclear because of the older English vernacular. But let's kind of reword it for modern English. And that's verse 4. You have secured my pardon from judgment as you sat on the judgment throne, determining righteousness. I mean, come on. You secured my pardon from judgment? David knew how to capture God's grace and how it's exercised in our lives. And he puts it so eloquently into words. As our Lord sits on the throne judging the righteous and the unrighteous, it's only those who have been clothed by His grace in righteousness that are pardoned by the blood of His Son. Not only does He see the pardon we've accepted through the belief in His Son, He lets the heathen know that the reason they do not get a pardon is because of their unbelief. This is the ultimate definition of wickedness not believing in the only begotten Son of God. And this is also the ultimate definition of righteousness, to believe in the only begotten Son of God. They are the only two ends of the spectrum. They are the defining characteristics of the justified and the unjust. Sure, the unjust have destroyed. They've torn down pillars of the faith. They've tried to remove God from the public eye. They've taken his name off monuments. They've tried to replace the truth of his creation with the theory of evolution. They argue that his definition of gender is no longer valid. Their time is fleeting. What they destroy is temporary, their definitions are temporary. Like the abomination that is slavery and the definition of a flat world, their definitions are temporary. As far as man was once concerned, the sun revolved around the earth. We're so dumb. And those that choose to continue to err in their beliefs will have an end. Their days are numbered. The just one, the Lord of all, he has been forever and will endure in the forever to come. The word endure here is without a beginning of the endurance. He has set as the only righteous judge and will continue as the only righteous judge, never to be unseated. He's the one who erected his throne and prepared the defining criteria for how he will judge. And how will he judge? The only way that his character allows in righteousness. And according to what criteria of righteousness will he judge? His own. That's the only criteria, not by our works of righteousness. Titus 3, 5-7 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You know, how merciful is our God that we don't have to rely on our own righteousness. Wicked ones, sinners, beware. Your righteousness, the perceived good you do in your life, they mean nothing before the judgment of God. And we should be thankful for that. I know I am. Imagine the immense pressure we would be under to weigh out our lives with our own righteousness. I'll tell you right now, there's no way any of us do more good than bad in our lives. Not by the measure of actual good. If the good is bringing glory to God, then failing to do so would be the bad. Can you say that the glory you give God outweighs the absence of giving him glory in our day-to-day lives? I don't believe a single person on earth, saved or not, would be able to claim that. We fail more often than we obey. And it's because we are imperfect sinners. And the beauty of it is that our righteousness is not hinged on us. Our righteousness hinges on the righteousness of Christ. And since His righteousness is unfailing... Ours can be unfailing as he applies his to our account, to our credit. And because he grades and judges on that scale, his judgment is right. His judgment is upright. It's perfect. It's without flaw or malice. His judgment's not levied out of anger or ego or selfishness. It's levied because it's just. Because of this, when those that are covered in his righteousness are troubled or oppressed, as our passage says, he is the refuge we run to. Are you struggling? Run to him for refuge. Failing? Run to him for refuge. Are you persecuted? Run to him for refuge. Troubled? Run to him for refuge. Attacked? Run to him for refuge. Are you depressed? Run to him for refuge. Are you anxious? Run to him for refuge. Are you worried? Why don't you run to him for refuge? Why do we hesitate? Why do we start out on our own? Why do we try to deal with things ourselves? He is our refuge. He not only wants to help us, it is in his nature as our father to help us and to do it well and perfectly. We know his name. He's Jehovah Jireh, our provider. He's Jehovah Rapha, our healer. He's Jehovah Nissi, our conquering banner. He's Jehovah Tzitkanu, our righteousness. And he is Jehovah Shalom. We don't just find peace in him. He is our peace. It's not in his nature to forsake us. He is Jehovah Shema. The Lord is here. How fortunate are we to dwell in his grace? How loved are we that he has bestowed on us his mercy? How blessed a people that know the name of our Lord and can call on him at any time? And how convicted are we that we don't call on him enough? We call on him when we're in the criteria I mentioned before, all the trouble criteria. But do we call on him to simply praise him? Do we call on him to just sing to him? Have you ever just sang to him? Not in corporate worship, not in the car, singing along with a Christian song. When have you ever, or when was the last time you sang to him in your quiet time with him? I've got to say, I don't do it often enough. I I might be able to count on one hand the times I've ever done it in my life. The Lord who dwells in peace, who is peace, who only desires good things for us, is he not worthy to sing to in private? Is he not worthy to sing to in public? When we're in church and we're led in corporate worship singing, do we sing? Why do we not? Do you think? And I see him sometimes out there, the ones who don't sing. Is it because you think you sing badly? I tell you about this story. I, there's this young man I knew in Germany that attended a church that we visited from time to time that was over there for the American military. This young man had Down syndrome. He was very high-functioning, and he was, really, he was really quite intelligent. He had trusted the Lord as his Savior, and he was so passionate about Christ. And he would sing in the song service at the top of his lung. Completely off key and just so flat, but praising Jesus, unashamed and worshiping his heart out, we could use a little of his courage. We could use a little of his carelessness for what other people think about our worship. Or maybe you don't sing because you're just not feeling it today. You know, the best way to start feeling it is to sing, to worship, to praise. Let me let you in on a secret. There are a lot of people that show up to church just not feeling it today. And we're not commanded to feel it, but we are commanded to do it. We're also commanded to worship whether we feel it or not. If you join in the worship, I promise you, it will not take long for the lyrics you're singing with your lips to move to your heart and then, boom, now you're worshiping. Declaring among other believers that our God is good and just and righteous And with our enemies, make no mistake, when he tries his enemies, our enemies, as he seeks out those that would do harm to his children, to those that would not believe on him, those that refuse to recognize his awesome power and grace, the blood of guilt will be found on them. There are two types of people that stand before God in judgment. Those that have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ's blood and those that have the guilt of Christ's blood on their hands. The sinner that put him on the cross with their sins but refused the payment of it. You know, he'll remember those that are covered by the blood, but he'll also remember the refusal of those that are covered in it, marked by it, marred by it. Guilty of slaying the Son of God, but not pardoned by the efficacy of his cleansing blood. The humble having accepted that he did indeed die for them because they were imperfect and incapable. Which are you? Are you covered by it? Are you covered in it? It's a very important distinction. It's the humble that ask for God to have mercy on them. It's the humble that realize that their enemies without and within surround them and that their only help is God. It is God only who can rescue us from an everlasting death, the eternal separation from him. The gates of death are no different than the gates of Hades, eternally separated from an almighty God who offered us righteousness, but had to condemn us when we refused his free gift. But how we can sing his praises when the opposite is true. And here we are again singing in the gates Singing, the Lord of peace has allowed me into the city of peace and made me a son or daughter. He has saved me, saved me from sin and death. No, not that I'll never sin again, but he's borne the consequences of my sin. And now I stand justified in him, clothed in his righteousness when I could do nothing to save myself because my transgressions were far too great, his sacrifice was greater than my sin. And by accepting his sacrifice, the scales tipped forever to righteous, righteous, righteous. Come on and rejoice. How can we not rejoice? How can we keep from singing his praise? How can we ever say enough? How amazing! is his love. Ah, but the heathen. They try to dig this hole for their acceptance. They get in this mindset, if I can do enough, work enough, commit enough. In their work, they thought, well, maybe I can trick my way into heaven. I'll, I'll make God think that I'm on his side. I'll do a bunch of good things toward the end of my life and it'll compensate for all the bad and then whoops not enough time like the rich man in Luke 12 they had this great plan but they had no more time to execute it in oh wait maybe they did maybe it worked out according to their plan maybe they were just a hellion for most of their life, but in the end, they were benevolent. They made contributions to charity. They sacrificially went out of their way to help their fellow man. There, at the end, they really were what some may consider good. Poor, wretched man. Caught in a trap. Can't get out. They trapped themselves in their own plan. The Lord doesn't judge by their righteousness. All their good meant absolutely nothing. Their own works actually condemned them because they were their own works. Selah. Pause. Let it sink in for a minute. Our works... In the absence of God, mean absolutely nothing. A little side note here even as a Christian, the works you do for your own glory will burn away as wood, hay, and stubble. You'll enter into heaven for sure, but saved as if by fire. I would ask, who are you living for? As we pause here and reflect on the fate of the wicked, David continues to describe their fate so that there's no mistake. The wicked and all the people that refuse to acknowledge, that forget the God that gave them breath, their fate is hell. And make no mistake, hell is a real place. It is a place devoid of God's presence where the wicked will never have the opportunity to benefit from his mercy or grace. At that point, the passive general blessings that all mankind receives in life will be stripped away, and only the rotten, corrupting effects of sin will be what surrounds the wicked in hell. See, heaven is devoid of sin and is in God's full and glorious presence. Hell is fully corrupted by sin that God has chosen not to hold in check, as it is a place that he chooses not to make his presence known. Imagine sin allowed to corrupt a place unchecked by God. This must be what hell feels like. And when we look at the blessed peace known by those who acknowledge that they need him, who come to him and say, I can't do this on my own. I can't reach you on my own. God, I need you in my life. I need your forgiveness. I need your presence. He won't forget us. He won't forget his promises to us. And of his promises, what should our expectations be? Every promise God has ever spoken to his people should be what we expect. He'll never leave us or forsake us. We are forever held in his mighty hand. Once and for all, the price was paid. He has prepared a place for us. The victory is his. He is greater than anything the world can throw at us. He doesn't allow us to be tempted more than we're able. He's secured our eternity in his son. He's sealed us before he even spoke the world into existence. Satan will not prevail. Sin will not prevail. He is coming again for us. We will reign with him in eternity. And so many more promises, more than I can list. And one day he will arise. Man, sin, and the devil will not prevail. They'll exist for a time and it may look like the battle is being lost, but they will not prevail. They will be judged. Their time is limited and their days are numbered. Mene, mene, Tekel Those are the words that the hand wrote on the wall. God has numbered their kingdom and knows its end. He has weighed them in his balance, his judgment, and has found that they are without pardon. Their kingdom will be divided and will fall. And one day, One glorious day, they will fear the Lord as he deserves, but it'll be too late. They'll know that all their efforts would have never been enough, but it'll be too late. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. They'll know that their righteousness, all of their perceived good, all of their self-defined morals, all of their excuses and rationalizations, it all meant Nothing. They were exactly as God had said all along. Not enough. They had rejected him for eternity, and now their judgment had come. They were, are, and will, after all, be just men. Just human. Imperfect. We can be made perfect in him. We can find redemption in him. Because while this psalm speaks of rightful condemnation on the wicked, it also tells a story of redemption for the wicked. Because we know, as David knew, that the only thing that separates the wicked from the righteous is the righteousness of God bestowed upon those that believe in him. As a Christian, aren't you thankful for his grace? And if you've never experienced his grace, wouldn't you like to secure your eternity? If you'd like to know more about how you can do that through belief in Jesus Christ, listen to the end of the podcast for our contact info. Well, thanks for walking with me a while as we read the word together. Won't you join me again next week and we'll walk just a little further? If you like the podcast, go ahead and hit that follow button. If you have any questions about salvation or general podcast questions, uh, reach out to us via email at podcast at lakeworthbaptist.org. Go ahead and follow us on Instagram and Facebook by looking for LWBC underscore publications.